Let me pray before we talk about the gospel this morning. Lord, I feel compelled to share the gospel of Jesus once again with people whom I love, many of whom know you, some of whom do not. I pray that I wouldn't share it with words of human wisdom or eloquence, but I want the cross of Christ to have its full powerful effect on all of us. So speak through me to these people. I pray in your name. Amen. Well, in this series, we are exploring the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are, we are seeing it as a diamond, a beautiful, many-faceted diamond that we are holding up to the light of God's truth and God's word, and we are just um, marveling at it and exploring it in all of its stunning brilliance and beauty, and it truly is a treasure, the gospel of Jesus Christ is. If you have a study guide, you can pull it out of your worship folder, and we're going to be talking about the gospel again today, and I want you to know that when it comes to this topic, I feel like I've been guilty of something that I've needed to repent of, and it's, I'll call it assuming the gospel, assuming it. And by that I mean the practice of not giving the gospel of Jesus much airtime, but instead just assuming that everybody already knows it and understands it and believes it. I heard Mark Driscoll say this, It takes three generations to lose the centrality of Jesus Christ. One generation believes, the next generation assumes, and the third generation forgets it or denies it altogether. Never assume the gospel. Martin Luther was quoted as saying this, The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. That was Martin Luther who said that. And so for my part, I've decided to do this, to beat it into our heads continually, to put the gospel of Jesus Christ front and center stage, to define it accurately, to tie everything back to Jesus Christ, to not just assume that everybody already knows what the gospel is, and to ask the Holy Spirit to make it precious to us. A guy named C.J. Mahaney wrote this, If there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't mean passionate only about sharing it with others. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each and every one of us, and only the gospel ought to be. So today, I intend to preach to you the gospel. I know that some of you are not yet followers of Jesus, and many of you are. But I believe, and I'm coming to believe, that both non-believers and believers need to hear the gospel regularly and often. And we who know Christ need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. In this series, we're learning the gospel line upon line, precept upon precept. So let me take a moment and review what we've learned so far about the gospel as we've studied it and and looked at it. We learned in our first week that the gospel was God's idea. God invented the gospel. It came from his mind. Man did not create this. We noted that the gospel is a plan, God's plan for reconciliation, for reconciling sinful people with a holy and righteous God. 
And then we rejoice that that plan is primarily a person, isn't it? And his name is Jesus. We've been singing about him all morning. We love him. We hold Jesus up high here in this church. The plan was a person sent to our planet to bring good news. We also saw that the gospel is ultimately for God's glory. Now, we are greatly benefited by believing the gospel. We partake of its benefits, but ultimately, its ultimate intent is to make God look glorious as he is. We also saw that the gospel message has a focal point, a cross. An old rugged cross stands at the apex of human history. And so we've been talking a lot about the cross and what it means, and we've been observing the Lord's table, communion, together each week in this series, as we'll do today. We celebrate a cross and what was achieved there. And then, a couple weeks ago, we noted that the gospel message is very good news that overwhelms the extremely bad news of mankind's guilty standing before his creator. And we looked at the bad news, didn't we? From Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, and saw how mankind, all of us, stand guilty before our creator. And that's what makes the good news really good, because it overwhelms the bad news. Now today I want us to turn in your Bibles, if you have it, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or it'll be on the screens as well. We're going to read aloud together a passage that is perhaps the clearest summation of the gospel in the entire New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Let's read this aloud together. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What Paul tells us here is that the gospel he preached is a message of good news about certain historical events that took place in space and time and that those events have deep theological significance to God and to us. It starts with historical events, and what are they? They're listed in verse 3. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. Those are the gospel events. And I want to talk for a few moments about that first one, that Christ died. I want to say a few things about the crucifixion of Jesus. Because the cross of Jesus is the jewel of our faith. And to fully appreciate what happened on the cross, I think we need to feel the scandal of it. We need to feel the suffering associated with it. We need to feel the utter humiliation of crucifixion. Now, crucifixion as a a mode of execution was invented by the Persians in 500 B.C., and it was a fairly common practice in that part of the world till about 300 A.D. when the emperor Constantine ceased practice of crucifixion. He had become a Christian, and he stopped it. So for about 800 years, criminals were crucified, executed on crosses. Tens of thousands of criminals were crucified during that period. It was a most horrific mode of execution. A a word was even created in our language to describe the pain and the suffering of crucifixion. It's the word excruciating. Ex 
excruciating from the cross. And certainly, the suffering on a cross was excruciating. The Roman historian Cicero declared that good Roman citizens shouldn't even speak of the cross because it was too horrifying for decent people to contemplate. The Jewish historian Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. In Roman times, crucifixion was most normally carried out in public spaces where crowds gather, the equivalent of our shopping malls. It was meant to be publicly humiliating for the criminals who were being crucified. And at that scene, the worst members of society would often gawk and jeer and mock and laugh at the men who were being crucified, who would in turn often urinate on them or shout curses at them in retaliation and in bitterness. The whole scene was absolutely wretched and embarrassing and humiliating. I just found this out this week. Women were rarely crucified. You just never hear about that. But occasionally a woman was crucified, and when they were, the Roman custom was that they be turned around to face the cross because even in that barbaric culture, it was considered unbearable to have to look at the anguished face of a woman being crucified. It was that horrendous. Death by crucifixion is a painfully slow death by asphyxiation. People who were crucified usually died of suffocation. They couldn't continue to get air. But it was so excruciatingly painful that many times criminals would let their arms sag and try to drop down to hasten their death and end their suffering. So what the Romans would do is put a little wooden seat under their buttocks affixed to the cross so that they could not slouch and so that their pain and suffering would be prolonged and their anguish would continue. Crucifixion in our day is very rare, but it's still occasionally practiced in some parts of the world, believe it or not. There are still Christians who are crucified for their faith, rarely in remote places, but it still happens. So crucifixion is gruesome, and it begs the question, how can Christians view the cross and crucifixion as good news? And to understand that, we have to move from the historical facts of the murder of Jesus to the theological truths about that that are revealed to us in Scripture. And so today, I've titled the message, Jesus is the Gospel, and I want to explain to you why I believe that Jesus himself is the good news. Number one, Jesus is our substitute. On the cross, when Jesus was being crucified, he was our substitute. He was taking our place. Was he not? Theologians call this the substitutionary atonement. And in the United States, in our day, there is a theological war brewing over the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. More and more scholars are refusing to accept it. They are refusing to accept the notion that on the cross, God the Father was punishing God the Son in our place. One writer went so far as to say, if that's what was happening on the cross, that is divine child abuse, and I reject it. And we must not join those who are chucking the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. We must embrace it because the Bible embraces it. J.I. Packer, the noted author, has declared this that this is the issue regarding the cross of Jesus. If we lose the substitutionary atonement, we lose the gospel. D.A. Carson 
said this, If words mean anything, I believe that those who have denied the substitutionary atonement of Jesus have essentially lost the Christian faith. You see, the Bible clearly describes substitution in many places with a little word, for. Jesus died for our sins, for us, in our place, in our stead, on our behalf. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Our memory verse for this week, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 Peter 3.18. I love this verse. For Christ died for sins... Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. You see, Jesus had no sin of his own. In him was no sin, it says. As I've mentioned, on one occasion, he looked out at a group of people and said, Who of you can convict me of any sin? And there was silence. Don't you try that at work or at home. You will get some feedback. But no one could say anything accurately about Jesus sinning. He had no sin. As a result, he could take our place. He was the innocent substitute who could stand in for us and take the punishment that we, human beings, deserve because of our sin. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is our substitute. It's been said that back in the Garden of Eden, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, initiated the first act of substitution when they substituted themselves for God. They said, we we don't want his authority. We want to establish our own guidelines. We want to do our own thing. But in great love, God, through Jesus, came into human history and substituted himself for us. John Stott writes this, Jesus' substitution undoes our substitution. As we took the place of God, God came to take our place and save us from our foolish selves and our deep passion for sinful rebellion. Jesus took our place. As my substitute, he endured what I deserve so that he could give me what I don't deserve. Jesus is the gospel because he's our substitute. Number two, Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our victor. Not only our substitute, but our victor. This means that Jesus, through his work on the cross, conquered Satan and demons. He's a winner. Jesus won. Now, the Buckeyes won yesterday, and many of you are excited about that. But on a much grander scale, and far more importantly, Jesus has conquered his foes. And some of you jump up and down and scream at the Buckeye game, and then you come to church, and we talk about Jesus, and you go, that's wonderful. I'm so glad he won. When you should be going, yes! (laughs) Yes, Jesus is the winner. He's the victor. And his victory is our victory. Listen to Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, you say, what is that? It sounds bad. It is. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, all our sins, In the original language, the word all means all, every one of them. You say, what about the sins I haven't committed yet? All your sins, past, present, and future, if you are in Christ, if you believe the gospel, 
See, when Jesus died on the cross, all your sins were future. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, circle the word disarmed, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's not talking about people there, powers and authorities. When Paul uses that phrase, he's talking about demons and Satan. Having disarmed Satan and his demons, he made a public spectacle of them. You might want to circle that little phrase. Triumphing over them by the cross. I love this imagery. In that day when two kingdoms clashed in war, in battle, after the outcome was decided, the conquering king would disarm the soldiers and the king of the defeated army. He would strip them naked. He would chain them together, and then he would drag them back to his city. He would then lead a victory parade, a triumphal procession through the streets of his city as the throngs would gather there. A national holiday would be declared, and the people would cheer their heroes and gloat in their victory and rejoice. First in the victory procession would be the proud and the victorious king strutting through his streets like a proud peacock, followed by his rugged warriors. Behind the warriors, the humiliated soldiers would trudge along, chained together, naked, followed at the very end, bringing up the rear was the defeated king, humiliated, naked, chained to his soldiers, being dragged through the streets of the city. And the people would shout and laugh and gloat and celebrate and give high fives and sing songs of joy. Paul is saying that that is what Jesus did to Satan and his cronies on the cross. When it looked to everybody like Jesus had been soundly defeated, and I think even Satan and his demons thought that they had won, that they had beaten Jesus, that God turned the tables on them and through the very act of Jesus' death brought victory and defeated Satan and his demons. In their arrogance, they thought they had knocked out their chief rival, but God turned the tables with his brilliant victory plan. And so Jesus is the victor, defeating and defanging his foe. He's the victor. As Paul wrote, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. We're in the victor's army. We're his soldiers. We're in his army. We're on the winning side. His victory is our victory. It ensures our eternal victory and it gives us the power for our present victory right here and now. Jesus is the gospel. He is our substitute. He is our victor. Number three, Jesus is our redemption, our redeemer. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news because he is our redeemer. Would you read aloud with me Titus 2, 13? Titus 2, 13. While we wait... For the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. First of all, notice that it calls Jesus Christ our what? What does it say? Our great God and Savior. Now, stupid people will tell you that Jesus is never referred to as God in the Bible. Until, you know, read it. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God. Then it says he redeemed us. 
from all wickedness and purified for himself a people of his very own. Redeemed us. That means to purchase out of slavery. He liberated us. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood. That was the purchase price. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I think... I think Paul drew this analogy of redemption from the Exodus. From the Exodus. When God, you remember the story of the Exodus? God's chosen people, Israel, were in slavery in Egypt to to a cruel taskmaster, Pharaoh, for 400 years. Pharaoh despised them. He mistreated them. God came along, conquered Pharaoh, liberated his people so they were free to run out into the desert and praise their God. Read Miriam's song sometime. It's awesome. That's the picture of redemption here. People enslaved to sin. Sometimes people think they're free. Oh yeah, we're free. We've got freedom. Not apart from the gospel, you're not free. You're not free to not sin. You're not free to worship Jesus from a pure heart. Not until you embrace the gospel. But then Jesus comes along and conquers the cruel taskmaster of sin through the cross liberating his people from sin and addiction so they can run free and live new lives and have joy and sing songs of praise to him. You see, without Jesus' death on the cross, there is no redemption. There are no songs. There is no real joy and gladness. Jesus is our redeemer. He is our redemption. He has liberated us from enslavement to sin. He is the gospel. Number four, Jesus is our justification. It's a theological word. We don't use perhaps a lot in daily life and language. Maybe we should. It's a Bible word. Notice what Coloss- or excuse me, Galatians 2.16 says. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Jesus is our justification. Now we've touched on this before, but let me talk about it a little bit more. The language here is taken from the world of law, from the world of jurisprudence. God, our creator, is pictured as the righteous judge over all the earth, pure and holy. The accused, those who stand accused, are all of humanity who have sinned. Guilt is established beyond any reasonable doubt. Judgment is deserved and sentencing has taken place. Yet amazingly, the judge has it in his heart to somehow declare the guilty, condemned people righteous. That's in his heart. How in the world could a righteous and holy judge possibly do that, declare guilty people righteous without impugning his own integrity, without appearing soft and weak? If a human judge did that, ah, no big deal, go free. We'd get rid of them. You see, most people are asking the wrong question. Most people in our culture are asking this question. How could a loving God ever send people to hell? That comes from a man-centered perspective. And as we've said, we don't live in a man-centered universe. We live in a God-centered universe. The real question is, how could a holy and righteous God ever allow unrighteous people into heaven? 
How could he possibly justify anyone, declare anyone righteous when we are all guilty of sin? That's the question. And that's the dilemma that the gospel addresses so beautifully. I want to emphasize again the character of our creator, his nature. Listen to his description of himself. Recorded in Exodus 34, 6, when he passed in front of Moses after Moses had asked him to show him his glory. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Do you see the truth of who God is here, what he's like? He's both. Our culture doesn't get this. He's both. He is loving, deeply loving, and immeasurably holy and righteous. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, his justice and his mercy met. His justice, his just wrath against sin was poured out on his own son. He justly punished sin on the cross in the body of his own son, Jesus. And he now can offer mercy to those who put their faith in Jesus. In his mercy, he made a way for sinners to be declared righteous by faith. Now listen. People want to be righteous innately, inherently. They want to be righteous or at least be thought of as righteous or be considered righteous. And billions of people are all running down the same path to obtain righteousness. It's the path of religion. Of religion. So what is religion? Simply this. Religion is rule keeping. That's what religion is. Religion creates lists of rules. Rules of good things that you should be doing and bad things that you should be avoiding. That's religion. Religion is performance-based. Do you understand that? People steeped in religion are trying as hard as they can to earn acceptance and favor with God. And it is a heavy, heavy yoke. They're trying to be justified before God by their good deeds, by their works. Simply stated, religion is mankind's attempt to earn God's favor by trying to be good. And people want righteousness. They want to be seen as, as good. And there are many, there's a, there's a variety of rule-keeping religions. Some people are trying to be justified through church membership. Some people believe in justification through rituals, doing religious rituals week in and week out, hoping against hope that God will see that and Favor them. Some people believe in justification by recycling. Saving Mother Earth, driving hybrid cars, all of that, you know. That's the way to be right with God. Some people believe in justification by serving mankind. And as good as it is to serve mankind, it's simply another form of performance-based religion if it's done trying to earn God's favor. Some people believe in justification through hardcore devotion to a rigid religion. This explains the rise of Islam in our world. People want to be righteous. And so many of them find the most rigid, rule-based religion they can possibly find and devote themselves to it, even dying for that cause, all in an attempt to be accepted by God and hopefully make it into paradise and be surrounded by 72 virgins. 
That's religion. All of it, it's religious rule-keeping. And Paul declared this, by observing the law, by rule-keeping, no one will be justified. Why? Because you could never be good enough. And people say, well, how good do you have to be? In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, be perfect. Therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's a high bar. You say, well, no one can be perfect. Yeah, that's exactly right. God's standard is so high that the only way you or I or anyone on this planet could ever be declared righteous is if he gave us gift righteousness as opposed to earned righteousness. You see, rule-keeping doesn't cut it with God. That's a big blow to religious people. The truth is, God hates religion. (laughs) God hates religion. It was religious people that crucified Jesus. Jesus reserved his harshest words, harshest rebukes for religious people. God hates religion. Religion promotes self-righteousness, which feeds pride. God offers gift righteousness, which effectively does away with any boasting. The cross of Jesus allowed God to offer righteousness as a gift to all who would believe in his son. That's called justification by faith. That's what got Martin Luther in big-time trouble. But that's a sermon for another time. The only way that guilty sinners could ever be declared righteous as if we receive that righteousness as a gift by faith. Say, how does that work? Well, Martin Luther said that on the cross, a great exchange took place. Jesus took our sins and then offered us his righteousness. Like exchanging report cards with the smartest kid in the class. Really? Yeah. You'll take my report card, my C's, D's, and F's? Yep. And you'll give me your straight-A report card? Yep. And that's going to get applied to my account so that I look like a straight-A student? Yep. That's it. That's the great exchange. That's what God offers, gift righteousness. This is good news. Now, some people think, you know, well, but I'm, but I'm a good person, you know. I, doesn't God recognize that? I mean, I, I try to live right. I pay my taxes. I'm faithful to my spouse. I do good things. I help old ladies across the street. Isn't God somewhat impressed by my righteousness? Could I be crass for a few moments? This is straight out of the Bible, so don't get mad at me, okay? In Philippians 3, Paul was describing his resume, his religious resume. He talked about all of his religious accomplishments. And he said, but you know what? In order to obtain the gift righteousness that Jesus offers... I had to forsake all of my credentials, all of my righteousness, and I now consider it, depending on the translation you have, dung, manure. If you have the original 1611 King James, it uses the S word. I consider all my self-righteousness a big pile of crap compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. 
And since we are equal opportunity offenders around here, for you ladies, Isaiah 64.6 says it a little differently. It says, all our righteousness is like filthy rags, bloody menstrual cloths. And so the person who goes to God says, look how good I am. I mean, I've done all these good things here, God. I'm presenting this to you so that you'll accept me and be impressed and be pleased. God says, so you're offering me your turds and your tampons. (laughs) And you expect me to be impressed by that? It's sickening. It's ugly. It's gross. I don't know if we get this. God is not impressed by our attempts at self-righteousness. He's not. None of you would be impressed if that was the offering given to you on your birthday, you know. Paul said, I have obtained the righteousness that comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus is our justification, the one who makes us righteous. And this comes about not by rule-keeping, not by religion, but by faith in his blood. That's the core of the gospel right there. And God offers righteousness as a gift. I'm telling you, no other religion has a God this good. He paid the price. Last, Jesus is our new covenant sacrifice. I wish I had more time to spend on this, and I don't. Our new covenant sacrifice. He's our substitute. He's our victor. He's our redeemer. He's our justification. He's our new covenant sacrifice. Hebrews 9.24, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. It was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear before us, for us excuse me, in God's presence. Some scholars believe that while Jesus' body, dead body, was hanging on the cross or while it was in the tomb, his spirit actually ascended up into heaven with a bowl full of his own blood, presenting it into the heavenly holy of holies as payment for our sins. Verse 25, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own, Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. No, but now he has appeared once for all. I love that. Once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, not the blood of bulls or goats or lambs. Jesus is our new covenant sacrifice. Under the old covenant, God made it very clear that sin could only be covered by a sacrifice of blood, innocent blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Every little Jewish boy and girl understood this because they saw sacrifice after sacrifice, bloodshed after bloodshed after bloodshed. It was drilled into their minds from a very early age. Sin must be paid for by the shedding of innocent blood. Sin must be paid for by the shedding of innocent blood. One guy I read said this, To us, blood is very disgusting. Kind of like, you know, you think about movies or video games or things, and the the camera kind of pans in and then kind of pans away. We don't want to have a sustained look at blood. It's just disgusting to us. But when you read the Old Testament, you find the camera panning in on bloodshed and holding a steady shot. 
Why? Because God links sin with blood so that we will identify sin with blood, so that we will be as horrified by our sin as we are by the sight of blood. The good news is that the old covenant foreshadowed and pointed to a new covenant in which the blood of an innocent lamb would be shed that would eternally cover all the sins of all time, of all of his people, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The old covenant prescribed having a priest and a temple and a lamb. But we don't need today a priest and a temple and a lamb because Jesus is our priest, he is our temple, he is the eternal Lamb of God who shed his blood. Once and for all. No more need for any sacrifices. We don't come here on weekends and slaughter animals and shed their blood. Why? Because the Lamb of God has shed his blood once for all. And God raised Jesus from the dead in part, I believe, to demonstrate that he was completely satisfied with Jesus' blood as the payment for all of our sins. He's our new covenant sacrifice. When Jesus cried out, It is finished! On the cross, all the work of the new covenant was completed. The final bloodshed necessary for the remission of sin was spilled out. On the old rugged cross, Jesus paid it all. He's our new covenant sacrifice. He's our justification. He's our redemption. He's our victor. He's our substitute. And he's much, much more. (laughs) Some people have said, how can you spend multiple weeks on the gospel? I'm thinking, how can you not spend multiple weeks on the gospel? We could spend 52 weeks on it. It is that glorious. Jesus is is incredible. He is the gospel. And so we're going to partake of the communion elements again today. And I'm going to ask, if you're serving that, you can go get prepared for that. We're going to have um, small group couples and pairs serving communion. But as they prepare, let me ask you this question. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Has the, by that I mean, has the cross of Jesus Christ become precious to you? On judgment day, when you stand before God, are you going to offer him your stuff? You know, your best shot? Your, best, your resume, your credentials, your best attempts at being a good person, knowing that the standard is way up here? Or are you going to say, you know what? My only defense, my only plea, my only hope is that I have received by faith the righteousness of Jesus Christ as he took my sins on that cross, offered me his perfect scorecard, his straight A report card, and that was imputed to my account. That's my only hope, God! And God says, that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> it's my son. It's his righteousness. That's the only thing that will ever get anybody into the presence of God. Do you believe that? Has that ever become personal to you? I mean, like come down and lodged right here in your heart. If not, I would challenge you today to repent of your sins, to chuck all of your human effort at being accepted by God and embrace the cross of Jesus, embrace his blood. In fact, I would encourage you to not participate in the Lord's table unless you've done that. And you can do that in these next few moments. So let's bow our heads together. In a moment, 
you'd examined your heart after you've given thanks to Jesus for what he did for you, you can go to any of these couples kind of spread around the perimeter of the room. And as you see the loaf of bread, you can tear off a piece of that bread and and the one person will say, this is his body broken for you. And then you can dip it into the cup, dip it into the cup, and the other one will say, this is his blood shed for you. And you can partake of that, symbolizing that you believe that that's your only hope to ever be declared righteous by a holy God. Father, I thank you so much again for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was your idea, it was your marvelous plan, and it came from your heart of love. I imagine that we have no idea how much you love us. You demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, not while we were all beautiful and lovely, but while we were sinners, Christ died for us, for us as our substitute. May we embrace that truth right now, cherish it, treasure it, believe it, live out of that truth. So today, once again, we remember your sacrifice for us. Thank you.